The Burning Bird presents The Phoenix Files, featuring Steve Leinert. But, uh, you know what? I'm shoot or shoot. Alexander Shaggy Shragus. And that Nardy was wild. And then it ends. Nard gets uh, the gold. And Harvish Huck Meta. Oh, my God. Again, this is what the Phoenix do. You know, they give me hope. They give me hope. Welcome, Phoenix fans, to another episode of The Burning Bird presents The Phoenix Files, Game of the Week. Today we harken back to June 29, 2019, when the Phoenix traveled to Toronto to take on the Toronto Rush. Before I go into the game summary, I forgot to introduce all of my panel of guests here today. Joining me are my regular partners in crime, Alexander Shaggy Shraggy. Shaggy, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing so well. Spent all day working on Burning Bird things, and now I get to spend more time working on Burning Bird things. That's all we really do anymore is work on Burning Bird things, Shag, I gotta tell you. We're joined again by Harvish Huck Meta. Harvish, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I finally got a haircut. I cut it myself. Shaggy, it's not as good as yours, but it was definitely a huge mess in the bathroom. Like a big mess. <laughs> Harvish, you look good there, buddy. And also, we have a very special guest joining us today. Two-time national champion. Two-time Pata Summer League champion. New York gridlock player. Multiple Fall League champion, Andrea DiSabato. Andrea, thank you for joining us on The Burning Bird. Hey, it's my pleasure. Hi, everyone. I miss, miss the season. Bummed it's not happening. Both mine and yours. Happy to, happy to still be involved in some way. Uh, this will be, be a fun evening. This will be, be fun. The Phoenix uh, kicked off the scoring against Toronto and jumped out to a 2-1 to one lead, a lead they would actually never relinquish. That's right, Phoenix fans. The Toronto Rush actually never held a single lead against the Phoenix in all of 2019. Philadelphia would pick up a trio of breaks in that first quarter, but a last-second goal by the Rush would end the half with the Phoenix holding an 8-5 to lead. The teams would trade goals throughout the second quarter as the Phoenix took a 16-14 lead at half, but Ryan Weaver was slinging hot fire in the second quarter for the Phoenix, throwing six assists in the quarter to help keep Toronto at bay. The second half opened with a Sack Sands goal, his sixth of the game, and the Phoenix followed with a break to make it an 18-14 contest. The Phoenix held a five-goal advantage at 21-16, but Toronto would get a hold and notch its first break of the game late in the third quarter to pull within 21-18. Toronto would go on a bit of a run to start the fourth quarter and bring the game within 21-20. Phoenix. But just as things got interesting... That was when the stream cut out, and we all have to go in our memories, conversations with the players, and Harvish's favorite tool, the Ulti Analytics stats page. As all hope seemed lost, the Phoenix would notch a slew of scores, and although Toronto would pick up another break as time expired, it would not be enough, as the Philadelphia Phoenix would end up sweeping the Toronto rush on the season, winning 26-24 in Toronto. Ryan Weaver ended the game with eight assists and two goals. Mike Arcata had five goals and two assists. Zach Zanz had those six goals that we already mentioned. Sean Mott had three assists. Dustin Damiano had three assists to go along with two goals. And Mark Sands had three goals and two assists for the Phoenix. I mean, just going up to Toronto there, Shaggy, and getting a win is hard enough for them to hold almost wire to wire there was really impressive. Oh, yeah, super impressive. And it was made more impressive by the fact that the whole stream kicks off by like a 10-minute slew of the commentators from Toronto explaining away the previous loss. The Rush were missing players. 
The weather was hard. By the way, the weather being bad is my least favorite excuse for an ultimate team ever. It's not like one team has all the good weather and the other team has all the bad weather. The Phoenix also played in the bad weather. The idea that that is the reason that Toronto lost is lunacy. Uh, the season, this, this is a season full of first losses. That's what they said. This is the first time Toronto's lost to New York. So, of course, it's also the first time Toronto would lose to Philly. And then they spent a bunch of time explaining why, well, we have Cam Harris back in this game, and the Phoenix are missing all their top players. So this is now the rush really wanted, as opposed to before, where they didn't want to win the game. I was so upset before the game even started. The announcers were not at their finest hours throughout the entire broadcast, in my opinion. Andrea, what did you see? I know. So there was a patrol tournament that weekend. So Phoenix were missing some players, certainly not all of their top. Um, So that made it more interesting for sure. Definitely like a point that broadcasters should mention. Both teams were missing a couple people. And I don't know that that was a huge factor. I remember... I just remember the game being the weather again. Sometimes I understand that it is a factor for both teams, but teams don't always throw the same level um, of completion. So, like, some are better. Some are used to playing in rain. Some are used to playing in cold. Um, But I agree mostly with Shaggy that, like, weather is why one team is losing. It's just, like, your skill in the weather is why you're losing, (laughs) more so the case, or your experience playing in that weather. But, yeah, overall, I know that both teams are missing people, but I think the, the Phoenix guys that game really stepped up and were great complimentary players to the Mots and Arcadas and, and everyone that still did choose to play. Sands, who plays patrol, chose to go to Phoenix that weekend. It is another interesting thing of who chose to go to what. But Yeah, no, it showed some uh, it's definitely showed some dedication to the Phoenix there by Mark Sands and it helped it definitely paid off as the Phoenix uh, held on thanks to in part to his contributions. Uh, what about you there, Harvest? What did you see? No, I, I definitely agree with the commentators. Uh, they just I remember in the second quarter when Weaver was just throwing these bombs in the end zone. They were like, well, guys, we're missing our uh, defensive uh, our defenders for these cutters. You know, we don't have the personnel right now to handle these cutters from the Phoenix. Like, if you have Arcana going deep, we need a good defender there. We're just missing these people from our team right now. I'm like, oh, my God, you just told us at first that you have all your, your weapons now and Toronto's ready to win this game. But they definitely came out. The labeling the Phoenix to not put up a fight. They really didn't see the Phoenix for what they were, and they came in really flat, and they just didn't know what to do with themselves when the first half ended, and they were down by four points. The Phoenix start out, and they and then get three breaks to start the game in that first quarter. I mean, that was that was huge in, in route to their victory. And Toronto wasn't able to get their first break until late in the third quarter, like real late. I don't understand how these announcers can give these excuses that they were giving for the Toronto rush in this particular game. Um, I also think it's interesting, you know, like the Phoenix had come up from Philadelphia. They went Friday, I think, to Rochester and then drove the rest of the way Saturday morning, I'm pretty sure. Whereas like Toronto is home. And I think that's just like another interesting factor always like, not that it's an excuse, but I think travel matters. And I think like they kind of took this, not necessarily ragtag group of Phoenix, but but people from the Phoenix that haven't played a lot of games, hadn't had a ton of playing time. They drove up, instead of driving up one day and playing, they went Friday night, drove halfway, stayed in Rochester, drove the rest of the way. So they were more rested than they might have been in past years for a Canada trip, but still like had to deal with all the travel. Toronto didn't. Just like another little interesting fact. A little a little twist in the uh in Toronto's again coffin of excuses because that's what excuses are there harvest excuses build the house of failure that's what excuses do 
They're the nails that build the house of failure. We've been talking to a lot of the players, Steve, just in general about how these can this these two Canada trips meant so much to them. How this Toronto win was one of the biggest games they've ever been a part of. And how that second that second trip where they went, you know, one and one, we talked to Nate Vendita and he was like, you know, we just felt so close as a team after that Ottawa loss. We we brought it in. And I think that part of it was that they were very intentional with how they traveled last season. But part of it was the players got so close on that trip that they, they were able to offset some of the negatives that come from travel. Well, and I also think it helped some of those younger players feel more at home and more at ease within the fabric of the team. And I think that translated over into the into the game. You know, you saw so many young players, uh, so many practice squad players stepping up again in this contest that it's kudos to them that they were that they felt comfortable enough just to, to seamlessly fit in. There was a few times like Greg Moeller made a play uh, like, you know, that these guys are, were playing high level ultimate and they didn't care that they were playing against the Toronto Rush in Toronto. It was like they didn't know any better. I know also like with people missing, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think like with Ethan Fortin being away and at patrol, I know that a lot of the season he and Mott shared the play calling and the string calling on the line of who would communicate to the team. And with Fortin being gone that game, I know Mott took on a lot of that weight himself. He called pretty much every string, every stack, every, every formation. So it was a consistent voice. It was the same voice um, and kind of didn't split the work with Fortin there since he was away. I don't know. It's just another little... Little note that I find somewhat interesting. It's funny that you mentioned uh, Fortin being away in relation to Mott calling a string. Because actually, uh, one of my favorite players to watch this game was Dustin Damiano. He's fresh back from his trip to with the Essers to who knows where. And he's brunette for the last game that we'll see. Because after this, he dyes his hair blonde. But he, I mean, he was he looked really good in that spot that usually we had uh, Ethan in for most of the season. And I, that doesn't happen if, you know, Ethan's there. And Ethan would have played great, too, I'm sure. But it changed the dynamic of the team. Yeah, I think definitely that this combination of Weaver and, and Damiano was actually one of the best combinations I've seen all season. I, I don't know why they didn't keep up at it, because Damiano had 57 completions, 100% completion percentage from my favorite website, Alt Analytics, you know. Definitely had to put that in there, but... That, that's really impressive. Watching the game, he just knew where to be. He was on the right place at all times. He was cutting deep when he needed to cut deep. He was scoring goals, having assists when he needed to have them. So he was definitely a great compliment to Weaver in this game especially. And, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, you, you, we watched Mott grow up on the field over the, over the past few years. And um, do you think in this particular game that he, like you saw his leadership take a little bit leap forward because <laughs> Ethan wasn't there? And you think it's something that he's going to be able to carry over into the 2020 season? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in the absence of people, um, certain people step up and he is always willing to do that when there's a void to be filled. And I think just kind of having that like, okay, I need to do this now and also play at the high level that he continues to play at um, was big for him in terms of he's a captain. So kind of showing like the on-field captaincy while having to manage playing and kind of dealing with it all at once while traveling for a team. I think, I think that's big, a big step for him and pretty impressive. And I think, yeah, it can only, only help uh, his confidence in terms of calling and, and going forward. Um, Yeah, definitely, definitely a factor and definitely something that I think like helps him and helps the team kind of look to him. And certainly for this upcoming season where there was no foreign, I think it would have absolutely continued. Even the Toronto announcers to the third quarter, they were asking each other who they thought the, was Philadelphia's most important player. 
And the, the one announcer said it was uh, Sean Mott because every time Philadelphia needed a, a play, Mott was right there to, to give them, to bail them out, to give them a cut, to make a throw. And, uh, and, and Mott has definitely been, uh, again, just keeps growing with, in leaps and bounds uh, right in front of our eyes. He's butting into a, a superstar in the AUDL. And uh, it, it, was, it was great to see him and Arcata connect a few times there during this particular game. And uh, I, I just don't even know what to make of Ryan Weaver's second quarter. I mean, that was the best I've seen <clears throat> that young man play. I mean, I, he's off the line here by me on the on the burning bird for turning the disc over. And uh, in, this, in, this, in this game, this kid was on fire. He, he couldn't be stopped in that second quarter. Well, it was pretty typical of his season, this game, too. He had a stretch where everything that he did was amazing. And then for the rest of the game, they either forced backhand and it largely neutralized him or he wasn't on the field, which is true for the rest of the season. We remember him from his two unbelievable games, this little stretch that he goes on. But for the other 12 games, he either wasn't on the field or he wasn't performing well. So in a microcosm, superhero Ryan Weaver coming through in this game was the same for his whole year. I kind of agree with Steve, too. I know Harvish said earlier, why didn't they run this combo um, of Damiano and Weaver. And I think that's interesting. I think, you know, maybe if they go Damiano Weaver the rest of the season, but I thought there was a lot of inconsistency from Weaver throughout the rest of the season. And, and I share that with Liner. It was a little frustrating to deal with some of those games where very high turnover um, and, and just kind of couldn't really connect and find the chemistry. And then to this game, just kind of go off like he did is interesting. And I wonder if it's again, in the absence of people, he, played a little differently or if he just had an on day. Um, but yeah, totally, totally interesting that I thought, you know, I don't know that like he totally proved that he should be in this spot every other game, but then coming to this game, he was like, okay, that's, that's why he's, he's here. And that's why he's in this spot other times. And finally he's, he's playing like it. You guys ever watch the movie major league? No. In, in the movie. Oh. In, <laughs> yeah. All right. So in the movie, you have Pedro Serrano, the big guy who's, who's worshiping Joe boo in his locker. Like nobody steals Joe Boo's rum, it'd be very bad, right? Well, in the in the beginning of the movie, they're throwing these doing batting practice, and the and the pitcher the uh, the pitching coach is throwing them straight fastballs right down the pike, and Pedro Serrano's crushing it out of the park, all over the place, and the the manager of the Indians comes over to the pitching coach, and he's like. Why, why hasn't anybody else picked this guy up? And they were like, okay, uh, throw him some curveballs there, uh, there, Jimmy. And he started throwing him some curveballs, and he just went swing and miss the whole time. And that'll just remind me of Ryan Weaver in this game because they forced him flick, and he was just pummeling, pummeling, pummeling these flicks, these 80, 90-yard flicks just on a dime. And then they forced him backhand, and it was like scuba turnover, 30-yard crossfield hammer turnover. And you're like, what is going on? What happened to the Ryan Weaver to also turned the disc over just a few minutes ago. So uh, I was as as I was watching all that unfold, it just reminded me of the, of the movie Major League, and I I it made me it made me laugh. But somehow, thanks to Ryan Weaver, the uh, the the rush still couldn't get a break and get couldn't get on top of the Phoenix as the Phoenix held a 16-14 lead at at halftime, and then Mott hits hits Zach Zans for a goal to make it 17-14, and then. Uh, Bryce Dunn gets a big D, and Dustin Damiano scores to uh, make it 18-14 Phoenix. And all of a sudden, 
like the, the the rush find themselves down four at home, not getting any breaks. Their offense is on the field too much, and they it's almost like they're in quicksand. Something that I pointed wanted to to mention while I was watching it is it, Toronto for all the skills that they have, they adjusted super slow in this game. Like in my notes, where it's seven to nine, it's the point where Arcada uh, is he he sees a bracket and he gets the people to commit under on his cut and then goes deep. Reaver throws a full field. In my notes, I write, maybe they should consider going backhand here. And then they don't go backhand until it's 18-14 in the second half. It takes them so long. Like, why are they sticking to this approach of forcing the Phoenix to throw flicks that were long? They love doing it. I don't, I don't know. That's on Sasha Reina a little bit. I couldn't believe they. it took them that long to switch to at least trying something different. I mean, you, you would think after the third deep shot goal by Ryan Weaver that somebody would at least go to a straight up mark on him. And uh, nobody did even that, did they, Harvish? Um, probably not. But like looking at Ryan Weaver throwing these flicks, he can throw them so off balance. He could be like leaning backwards and throwing these flicks and he still land perfectly in the end zone. I mean, that's how good he, is, good he is at a flick. And I was surprised the second half when they forced him backhand that he did he did have some a couple hiccups where he just I guess he can't throw a backhand. Well, it's a, it's a confidence level thing. I, I I would have to imagine. I mean, he, he just probably doesn't have the confidence to throw his backhand as much confidence as he has in his flick. Also, the team is less confident on the backhand side. Like, Arcada throws this crazy, loopy, off-balance break flick to somebody in the end zone, and you're watching it, you're like, this is not a great throw. Like, I get that we were having so much success throwing flicks, but we probably didn't need to throw that, you know? So I know in the second quarter that there was no breaks at all in the second quarter. And so when Shaggy was talking about the coach and, and wondering why she hadn't made a change, it's just like, well, Weaver is part of every offensive point, and he scores or assists in every offensive point except one in the second quarter, which is, is ridiculous. You had that one guy just taking off. Like, Andrea, you, you've been an assistant coach. Like, what would you do in this situation? Would you go up to your head coach and go, like, hey, uh, we should probably do something about this guy that's throwing these flicks? <laughs> yeah, I think it's tough. I think you want to stick to a game plan, and you want to say, like, we want to execute this. We chose to force this initially because of these reasons. But you also absolutely have to be willing to adjust amidst chaos or some unforeseen thing. And I think that's, you know, that's what happened. They waited a little long. I am not someone that's like so quick. You have to run up and change it immediately after the first one. But I think he proved that like, I'm going to keep doing this. So even if you don't change the force, um, put different coverage on him, try and push him upfield, you know, like anything else, even if you want to keep the force a certain way, can kind of change your one-on-one coverage of him or of of the backfield in general, um, which they, I don't think they did. So yeah, I think, probably should have done something sooner, even if it's not a force change. But um, maybe they were like, oh, it's just like a little bit of a fluke. It won't keep happening. And then that wasn't the case. See, that's an interesting point right there. I think Andrew just hit on something right there. And I think and I think the Toronto Rush totally thought that they were going to take the Phoenix out, but coming in in Toronto, that they were going to get vengeance on losing down in Philadelphia, and that they were going to just slaughter the Phoenix because the Phoenix, they knew the Phoenix were missing some players because of, of the patrol weekend that was going on. And I think when the Phoenix jumped on them that they were surprised, and that every time the Phoenix got a break in that first quarter, that they the Toronto sank deeper and deeper into a hole that they never could climb out of. 
And I just think that it, it, that it, it came from them from being uh, a little bit overconfident and a little bit, uh, a little bit cocky. And I think the Phoenix took advantage of that multiple times last year. So I think that Toronto definitely comes out like that. And you see it. Cam Harris has three drops in the first quarter. Like Cam Harris, never, Cam Harris is one of the best players in the league. He never drops a disc. And then he just he can't hold on to the Frisbee for some reason in that quarter. But I feel like Toronto starts taking Philly seriously pretty early on. You know, that second quarter, it's true that Philly doesn't get broken. But Philly could have gotten broken a lot of times, right? There's that point where Dustin Damiano catches the disc out the back of the end zone on the pull. And then for some reason, they make him start at the back of the end zone. And he throws it to Boyle, who immediately throws it out of bounds. And Toronto takes over in the end zone. That point should have been a break for Toronto. The last play of the game, Toronto has the disc ready to score. And there's six seconds left. And the dude gets hand blocked uh, in a double team where it looks like he just let go of the disc coming around. Like Toronto almost has two breaks in that second quarter. I feel like they start taking Philadelphia seriously really early, much earlier than like New York did in that New York game in Philadelphia, right? That we watched in the, in the lightning storm. And I think in that second quarter, our offense's ability to like weather all these bad moments is what saves them. And they're moving so well too. Like the backfield motion's really nice. All the cutters are running in. All those deep huts are creating tons of underneath space because Toronto's committing to stopping these deeps. And once they do that, obviously you have more room to come underneath. Mott's making cuts that like start six throws and seven seconds ago where like he'll just come running underneath wide open and catch the disc. And you're like, I, I like saw you run off screen and I don't know when this cut started. It's true that they came into that game, Toronto, not taking Philly seriously, but they start taking Philly seriously and Philly's still able to hold them off. Like that was really cool. I think the uh, I think credit you got to credit the offense there. They only turned the disc over five times in the first half to keep Toronto from getting those breaks. That's pretty impressive in the AUDL, considering the amount of possessions that you have in a half. Something really unrelated. What do you think about the players <laughs> taking timeouts? I've never. I mean, this is. I don't think I've, I've seen coaches take them, but I saw Mark Stans call a timeout. I saw Arcada call a timeout on the field. I rarely see that the players doing that, and so. Well, no, some, sometimes the players were told to take a timeout by the coaching staff. And the other times the coaches are yelling timeout, but the person with the disc, I'm, I'm pretty sure the person with the disc or the coach has to call timeout on the sideline. But I know when I was the coach that I had to, like, run down the sideline and, like, do the timeout call, like, in front of a referee's face in order to get the whistle blown. So it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like I just said timeout and that was it, you know? So you never know what goes into what what goes into somebody calling a timeout. But I will say this: there was one timeout call that it seemed to come after a Phoenix turnover, and the Phoenix got the disc back. And then Toronto seemed to get away with the same thing later on in the in the game. What do you think went on there? The two best timeout calls ever. They they wiped out a turnover. Hampson and 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 Sasha Rayner seem to be going at it back and forth over Coach Rayner's call. I, I guess they uh, they thought that that was a little after the turnover timeout, but the referees I guess wanted to even things up. I don't know. It was uh, definitely sketchy at best. Uh, I'll I'll say that. So that Arcata timeout call, talking about players calling timeouts, that was like one of the best timeouts we've seen. I think in a game, the the offense had totally stagnated. It was on the back of. Like, uh, it was uh, it was on the same point where they throw it out of bounds in the end zone. So, like, they had to work it from a dead stop on the goal line. Like, 
I think that players have a better sense of when the offense has stopped going than the coaches do in that specific position. And then when the coaches called timeouts, they were all great, right? Sasha calls a timeout to set up the offense with 29 seconds left. And, and, you know, we've talked before, we talked to Brian Jones about how we don't like it when coaches call the timeouts uh, before the point. And this was the only time that he did it. And I was like, ooh, I think that is a good timeout. They're not going to have this timeout left. They're getting the pull. There's 29 seconds left. That's smart. Now he can talk about how they're going to score and take the full time off the clock. It didn't work. They scored too quick, but still. Well, and then he took two timeouts on back-to-back points, uh, trying to pull within 21 to 19 late in the third quarter. But that seems to be the, uh, the, the Toronto announcer said it on the air they said that the rush liked to make up breaks by scoring the last goal of each quarter i thought that was an interesting little uh, note by the uh, by the announcers because it seemed to be where let's see the end of the first the end of the second and the end of the third quarters at least the and uh, oh in the end of the fourth quarter the rush scored the end the goal goals at the end of each quarter and that seems to be their mo is to hold it for that last goal i think that's interesting i think you know, there's something, there is a statement that comes from scoring last and holding it out and finishing on a strong note, but there's only four quarters. So if that's what your, that's what your game plan is and that's what you're hanging on and that's what's successful for you, I guess if you're down by four or less, that's fine. But it's not really sustainable to be like, that's our MO. It's like, we're going to just succeed at scoring last every quarter, but okay. There's- no, no, no. Maybe saying "mo" was was uh, I was overstating it, but uh, um, that, I, I do know that that was something that Toronto tries to do, at the very least, and they were seen to be successful in this particular game. Yeah, it's an interesting goal to do that, and I and I think I I actually like it, but yeah, to only have four chances to do something like that is is interesting. It shows discipline, it shows patience, it shows thought in your offense, but. Um, I think there was other parts of the game that they probably should have tried to focus on a little more. Oh, no, no doubt about it. But at the same time, the Phoenix have three breaks, the Toronto's none at halftime, and they're only up 16-14, you know? Because Toronto gets that, like you're saying, it is a break. They scored the last uh, possession of the first quarter, and then they get the disc in the second quarter. So it, it acts like a break. Dre, what are some of the things that you thought that Toronto should have worked harder on? I mean, it's not, it's like, it's just like, if that's the thing you're like, oh, well, let's make sure we get the end of quarter goal. That's my point is like, let's not like talk about that in the huddle, but let's talk about like how we're just letting these cutters cut at will. And like they, I mean, whatever stack they ran a side stack or um, put Mott in the lane or Arcata first, there was just no, like, it didn't seem like there was a ton of help defense. There wasn't a ton of, of um, like shutting down, shutting down our cutters, shutting down the throws we wanted to take. So I probably would have worked on something defensively. Obviously, like you want to say things like catch the disc, don't turn it over, but that's not really constructive. So more along the lines of like, why don't they play a little junkier? Why don't they do a little more to stop our offensive, aggressive attacks? Like in no matter who it was, Mott, Arcata. um, Yeah, just kind of like, Maybe more, maybe more defensive looks in terms of that, or defensive help, or some more junk would probably be my first. My first. So the announcers spend a lot of time blaming Remy Ojo for some reason. Poor Remy Ojo for not helping. They'll be like Remy's last back, but he doesn't help off here, uh, and it just seemed wrong to me to blame him. But do you think that should have that should have been like? 
the coaching thing. Like, the announcer should have been like, Sasha and Reina needs to talk to these people who are guarding the people at the end of the stack and be like, call out those switches and listen for them. It's definitely both. As a player, you need to be able to see that, and your coach can't tell you how to read a field and how to have game sense. But um, I think if he had, you know, been able to see it and point it out and say, like, hey, they're they're crushing us here one-on-one coverage. Let's let's help off. Let's stick someone back there. Yes, absolutely important for the coach to say it. Um, but, yeah, I think as a player, there's, there's onus on you to also know what risks to take and when to help. Um, and I think the Phoenix did it. Like, there's a couple times, like, Mott runs off or or someone else will run off. Um, and I don't think Hampson's cueing them to do that. Um, it just comes down to, like, are you reading the field? Do you want it? Are you in a position to? I don't even know that I felt Toronto was in a great position to help, even if they had seen, like, a lot of our, our attacks. Mm-hmm. Remy Ojo seemed to be looking behind himself for people to be helping him. And, uh, and instead, he, I guess they were looking for him to be the help. And that's why uh, there, there was a miscommunication back there. I don't know if that's what you saw there, Harvish. Uh, honestly, the, the camera just kind of swings from one way to another. So I see I see someone running off deep, like Shaggy says, and I and the camera pans over, and it's a goal later. I'm like, I don't know exactly what happened. All I know is the announcer said that it's Remy's fault. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> uh, they were hard on him, that's for sure. Oh, James Pollard had a big sky to give the Phoenix a break and a 21-16 lead in the third quarter. And all of a sudden, the Phoenix start to seemingly pull away again from the from the rush. But the rush answer the bell. They get a hold and they uh, use a uh, the, that late call timeout to get their first break of the game to pull within 21-18. Uh, that ended the third quarter. They got a hold to start the fourth quarter to make it 21-19. After multiple uh, turnovers by both teams, the Phoenix turned the disc over four times on the last point on the stream. The rush got another break after Remy Ojo got his first goal of the game to pull the rush within 21-20. Now, what happens next, fellas? So I have a question about that long point, right? There are a bunch of turnovers. Yes. um, And Toronto will eventually score a break to make it 21-20. So the yes. first the first turnover, I think Dustin Damiano has it. He throws a score. It's a score, but there's a foul on the throw, and because it's the AUDL, that foul carries over. And instead of it being a Phoenix score, Dustin walks forward ten yards and then dishes it to Weaver, who tries to throw a hammer downwind. It just carries too far. Do you? So in in every other version of Ultimate, right? That doesn't happen. You call the foul on the throw. It gets caught in the end zone. It's just a score. But it, because it's the AUDL, that foul continues. Do you think that the AUDL should implement advantage like there is in soccer where, you know, you, you whistle a foul and you wait to see if it matters? Or do you like that? Because in most circumstances, it's just quicker for the game if we have that foul happen. And then. All right, Andrea, let's go to you on that one. What do you think? Uh, it's tough. I would say I kind of like the rule change. Yeah, I'd be in favor of that. I'd be in favor of uh, giving advantage. Yeah, I'd say overall, I think I think it's good. I think you don't need to to take something away if it doesn't impact it. I know there was a year I played at Paganello, and and abroad there's rules that if you get fouled, but the disc flies to where you intended it to go, which is obviously like very subjective, um, <laughs> then it, then you can't call that foul, and that you can contest it. So if I get fouled and I threw it to you, and it still hits you in the hands, and you drop it, you know, like 
I don't get to call that foul, which is really interesting because it's like it flew exactly how you wanted it to. It doesn't matter that you're fouled. Um, and that just seems like very interesting to me that like, okay, give give people the advantage. If it's still going to work and, and if it's fine, why slow the game down? Um, I, I felt that in lacrosse too, actually. Um, they changed the rule while I was still playing, but you basically had to like, if you scored a goal and it went in, but you got fouled, they pulled you out and made you take a penalty shot instead of just saying, okay, you, the goal counts. Well, we don't need to take, give you the penalty shot now. And I was like, why are you taking a goal away to then make me take another shot, a penalty shot that I might miss just because I was fouled. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think I'm in favor of the rule change overall. Don't feel like amazingly strongly that it's killing the game to not have it, but yeah, I'd say I'd vote for it to change. It's not an and one in lacrosse like it is in basketball. It is now, but when I was first playing, it was not. So it was like, if I run in and I take a shot and I make it and I get fouled in the act, it is the goal comes back and I get the penalty shot um, instead of counting my goal that I made. And it's just kind of like, what are you like? Just give me that. Don't make me go 10 yards back and run through people again to try and take this penalty shot. Yeah. So it's not like an end one or it wasn't for a while. Now I'm pretty sure it is. I, I agree with the advantage. I mean, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I'll definitely agree with it. It's worked for Pata and even clubs. So it works. I, to me, just this point, when it's 21-19, and there's so many turnovers on this point, I think this might be the longest point in the game. I don't know because we don't know what happens <laughs> after 21-20. But in this, in this point, I, I, just, I just remember watching the New York Empire games, and when we huck it deep and Ben Yacht's there, and we huck it deep and Babbitt's there, it drives me insane. I love in this point itself. They're hocking it, and Mott's in the end zone. It's perfect. I mean, I feel so good. I'm like, oh, great. They're hocking it, and we have the right player at the right time in the right place. So it's great. You know, so, and they do that twice. And there's, I think in this game, there's only been, at most, only two Ds by multiple players. I think Campy had two Ds. Colin Messino had two Ds. And Mott had two Ds. And Mott's two Ds come in this point alone. <laughs> and him just skying people for Ds twice, two times in a row. It's just great to have that feeling, you know, once. Yeah, we watched that New York game. It was just so frustrating. So it's great to see it on our side. You know, it's perfect. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. I'm going to say that, no, I think the rule, ch- the rule should stay exactly the way it is, and I'll tell you why. It makes it unique to the AUDL. I mean, you know what I mean? You, want, you don't want things to be exactly the way they are in USA Ultimate, and the referees are being able to blow the whistle and, and make a call and stop the play. I mean, that, that could be – a that could be pivotal in a, in a playoff game if, uh, let's say, uh, somebody gets burned for a goal, but the marker fouls the thrower, and the 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 the, the pass is completed for a goal, but the thrower's got to get the disc back and walk it up ten yards, and then they turn it over. That's huge. That's a huge swing. So oh, I like to, I like to see the I like to see the the rule stay exactly the way it is. So I'm going to for novelty sake, just to be unique. Like, what's the actual reason to do that? <laughs> Wait, Steve, Steve, well, hold on. You're, yeah, you're an Eagles fan, right? <laughs> Steve, you're I'm an Eagles fan, right? I am an Eagles fan there, Harvest, yes. Okay, so okay, so Carson Wentz throws to Aguilar, and he might drop it. He, he probably would drop it. But he throws to Aguilar, but Aguilar gets had pass interference, but he catches it anyways. Does referee say, okay, you get 10 yards for pass interference, or you get advantage, you get to keep the catch? Doesn't the coach have a choice? Do you think the coach in the Phoenix should have a choice like, hey, I want to keep the score? No, 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 no. 
No, if no, it depends on what the rule was. If whatever the rule was in place at the time of the of the catch. So what in in this instance, the rule is in the AUDL. If you get fouled, even though Nelson Aguilar made the catch, the ball would go back to Carson Wentz in your in your example. Um, so that's the rule that's in place. And if that's the rule, the NFL is in place. It's not. A, it's not up to the coaches. The referees have to just enforce the rule of the game. And that's what they did in the Dustin Damiano's case. Um, so th- in this instance, yeah, no, the ball would have to go back to Carson Wentz and the touchdown would have to come off the board. Now, am I just saying that to be to, for novelty's sake? Yes. Yes, I'm totally just saying that for novelty's sake. That goal should totally count that Dustin Damiano threw and it and it didn't and and whatever. But do I want do I want a, a big mass? Uh, massive rule changes across the board. I'd rather make sure that lightning rule get gets enforced next time that that comes down because a that was dangerous and b New York lost that game. Steve, <laughs> oh my God, I'd be ready to agree with you if you hadn't said that uniqueness was the reason. Because like if we're gonna, if we want to be unique, why not have six people and a turkey on every line? Like uniqueness is not an argument in and of itself. You have to have a real basis for the rule besides what, it being what are you unique. Talking about? Look, you look can at- make. Uniqueness can be anything. Why don't they all wear face masks and and like cones on top of their heads? It would be unique to the AUDL from every other sport. Or making it mixed would be unique. That was my argument for the MLU. I I fought for that really hard when I worked for the MLU. Nobody listened to me. And the MLU went out of business. What if the AUDL was mixed? How, How much more interesting would that be if the AUDL was mixed? Uh, Philly and Seattle would be incredible. would be two of the top teams in the country. I think it would not be particularly close. I do think that what would be interesting to see is that if the AUDL was mixed and the PUL still happened, how many of the elite-level women's ultimate players played in the AUDL? Because that would shift it, too, right? If the AUDL becomes mixed and the PUL and the Western Ultimate League keep all their players, um, then... I think that like it might be the most dominant Philadelphia's ever been in a single sport in in anyone's lifetime. Uh, but if the elite women's players say this is like uh, gender equity that we've been fighting for. Also, my other thing is that I think that mixed in and of itself has like some flaws in it, the division. So let's say we make the AUDL mixed. You would have every quarter. You would either go eight on eight, which I think that the pro game should switch to anyway. Or you would have every quarter would be four, three or three, four splits, right? Because if you are allowed to um, have arbitrary dictations for whether there are four, like four or three men or women on the field at any given time, then uh, it'll continue to be arbitrary. If it's going to be mixed, it should be mixed. So let's say, for argument's sake, the AUDL exists. It's mixed in the first and the third quarter. You have to play four women or in the or four men. And then in the second and the fourth quarter, it switches. And the the Western Ultimate League and the Premier Ultimate League say, great, this is what we want. And we now shift and so that all those teams join the AUDL. And they're just all mixed teams. I think that the sport would be probably the coolest sporting event that we could be a part of by a large margin. Shaggy, why not just make it simple and just say eight-person eight team for women and for men, and that's how you play the whole game. Why are you having these different rules with, like, the first and third quarter and second quarter and fourth? What is – you're making it more complicated. Just make it just even for the whole game. Because ultimate players are really finicky about arbitrary rules and 
So, like, seven on seven is an arbitrary rule. It should the, – the ADL should be eight on eight. The field's huge. Why are we seven on seven? Because other ultimate is seven on seven. I don't know. Dre, what do you think? I, I like the eight. I like the four and four. I like the eight. I think – I mean, there's so much here, and I didn't want to derail the conversation. <laughs> I just wanted to, like, make fun of, you know, novel things, and why don't we do that? Um, I agree. Like, if the MLU wanted to be saved years ago, maybe going co-ed first would be the right move. Again, I love the AUDL. I think open is good. I just, I'm not trying to totally change it. I just think like there's a viewership desire for a mixed game. And I think that it would just be awesome to see it happen. Um, in terms of actual rules, I like the four on four, four split. Um, eight people on the field seems like a lot. Seven is already a little crowded. The field is bigger in pro. So as long as we're sticking with that, I think it's okay. Um, it changes the game significantly, though, in terms of like handlers, cutters, how many people you take. Um, it gives people fewer opportunities to play pro if we're taking half the men or half the women that we would have normally taken on a team. So there's like all that stuff that you factor in when you're actually working on it and planning it. Um, but yeah, I think overall eight would be okay. I would worry a little bit about the field size and crowding uh, with 16 people running around. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always an interesting, fun debate to kind of just throw out there. So I'm glad I, glad I caused some, some stir. Little, little ruckus, causing a little ruckus on the burning bird there, Andrea. Nice work. Yeah, I, I, I think that a mixed pro league would be a lot of fun to watch. Um, I, I think it would be very innovative, frankly. And I think it's something that's uh, going to happen in some sport sometime very soon. So the uh, Phoenix held on for a 26-24 victory after all was said and done in Toronto. Even though the fourth quarter we we couldn't we couldn't see what happened. Clearly, uh, Ryan Weaver caught a goal and threw another assist in that in that quarter. Sean Mott had another assist, and uh, I believe Mark Sands threw a goal in the fourth quarter to help propel the Phoenix to victory in Toronto. I mean, that was one of the biggest wins in a lot of these young players' careers, and I think that's going to be a big springboard for a lot of the Phoenix players that are on the team in 2020, that were on the team in 2019, especially some of those practice squad players, to uh, to to have the confidence to to feel like they are able to compete against anybody in the league. Yeah, it's a shame that we're not going back to Toronto this year because I would have loved to just the build-up for that game by us, the only people that build up phoenix games would have been so fun <laughs> <laughs> well we'll have to we'll have to get a new rival there shag we'll have to figure out who i guess the raleigh flyers would be the new toronto rush in the atlantic division uh how long do you think it'll take the phoenix to get a win down in raleigh well definitely a full calendar year because i don't think we're ever going south at this point uh i think that georgia may have finished that off when they said that they were opening back up the state. So I think in 2021, we'll notch a victory in Raleigh. I think the Phoenix are going undefeated in 2021. No one's holding me to it uh, in two years from now. So, <laughs> or a year. Oh, I don't know about that, Shag. I mean, you you uh, you like to revisit these burning birds and, 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 and hold yourself accountable. And I'm sure you'll uh, come back next year and say, I, I said the Phoenix would go undefeated and they just suffered their first loss of the season. I couldn't have been more wrong. I'm sure you'll come on and be quite contrite. No question. Do we, 
do we think that things are getting better? We talk about this every year, how they're going to be the best in that season, but their record is kind of the same. It's kind of been the same for <laughs> years. No, so we went we from no wins to four wins. Zero to well, four. We had, wins. Wins. we had five wins and a tie the year before. According to the Phoenix Files, that the, the Phoenix are three and one this year? Well, 4-0 <laughs> because we won that New York game, right, Steve? Oh, that's right. That's right. Thank you, Harvish. Thank you for bringing that up. Five and zero. This is our fifth uh, fifth game. Things are blurring together with all the, the different interviews we're doing and and all the different Burning Bird Phoenix Files we're doing, and it's just things are starting to run together. You know, we're 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 working on this on a daily basis. It seems like anymore. Yeah, who are you most excited to see next season to play for the Phoenix? Like a year from like the twenty twenty one season? Oh, the twenty twenty season. My bad. Yeah. Oh. Well, I you mean, have the roster, right? yeah, we all have the roster. Uh, Andrea, you've been around the team a bit too. I've been, I went to some practices. I went to the tryouts. Uh, I would say this is a, a more committed team for sure. And the ceiling athletically is a little higher. Um, it's difficult to say because like a lot of the problems that we had last year were things that I don't know if they get solved, right? If your handlers don't communicate well together and then, like throw turnovers i don't know if reconfiguring the handlers fixes that problem you might just have new handlers not communicating well uh, i think that the ceiling on this team was a little bit higher than last year's team i think last year was a playoff team like at its best and i think this year we we might have been a little bit better than that or we might have been a playoff team but in a slightly harder year to make the playoffs um but the floor, I mean, we have a lot of rookies on this team. So the floor is, I don't know, you know, we could have lost every game. The variance was wider. I'm looking forward to seeing what effect Alex Storm has on this team. I want to see, like, what his throws open up. And, uh, like, I want to see how much pressure it alleviates on players like Mott and uh, Dustin Damiano and helps open up their games a little bit. And I, uh, I've always enjoyed watching good handler play. Andrew, who are you excited to watch on the 2020 Phoenix? I pulled up the roster because it's been a while. So I actually did get the privilege of helping to scout at some of the tryouts. And, you know, I had talked to Hampson a lot um, about his. I think the roster is certainly interesting. It brings back people like Ken Wells, who took a little bit of a year break, a couple year break from the team, um, like Matt Glazer, um, who, you know, isn't playing club anymore, but wanted, a, wanted another run at pro. Paul Owens is just improving at an insane rate. Nick DiGiorgio coming back post-injury. I thought he was phenomenal in the offseason. People like, you know, you always love to see the the classics like Hemi, Greg, Mott just continue to play with new people and each other, Arcata. I think Brandon Pastor worked really hard in the offseason playing tons of leagues. Um, obviously, Luke Ryan of AMP fame um, joining the team, I think would be a totally electrifying addition. Uh, I was really excited to see him play pro personally as someone who has been my teammate in mixed club for multiple years now. I was really, really excited to see what he could do in open um, and in pro on a stage where it's just one game. He's, he's a very aggressive, exciting, physical player, and he – sustains some injuries because of that at times. So 
seeing him in the pro format was going to be really exciting for me. And I was really looking forward to, to seeing how he did in the league and, and just how he fit in. So I think he was probably my, my personal, obviously Alex Thorne, great addition, but I think if I had to name just one, it would probably be Luke Ryan. Um, and it had to be like a good comeback story. It'd probably be like half Ken Wells, half Nick DiGiorgio. I think uh, different people for different reasons, but overall my one would probably be Luke Ryan seeing how he fits in and, and just knowing him closely over the years. And that would have been just really exciting. And he brings so much energy and, and ability to the team that I think just would have been really, really fun for them and him. Bringing it back a whole full calendar year. Who is your favorite player in the Toronto game? It's hard to argue with Ryan Weaver, except that he only did it really for one quarter. You know, I mean, uh, I I like, you know, I like the way Dustin Damiano played in this game. (laughs) I I, I thought that he was solid the entire game. Like Harvish was saying, oh, I I ruined Harvish's pick. Um, 100% completion percentage. Two two goals, which like the, the handler position for the Phoenix never scores goals. So for them to get two was was really good. Uh, three assists, and, and Dustin added a block in there. So I'm going to say Dustin Damiano had one of his best games, and I think the Phoenix was, were more than happy to have him back from that trip in this particular game. Harvish, what made you upset about that? Dustin's my guy, man. I, he, he's so consistent. I love him. You know, he's, he's like the perfect handler. I was going to ask Andrea, like, who do you think is like the best two handlers we can have? And I was looking at all T and Alex, and I was seeing. I think Ethan Ford and Dustin Domino would make a great combination, actually. But yeah, I I would if I had to change my pick. Zach Sands probably. I mean, he had the most goals. I think he showed up when he needed to show up, and I, I'm gonna miss him next year, man. He he really had a huge impact on the Phoenix last year. This and, was Zach Sands' uh, best game, easily. Yeah, and he's not gonna. I guess he's not gonna be with us again. But I mean, he moved to Virginia Beach. He didn't pass away. He's Virginia Beach, but so that's funny. I did the exact same thing that Harvish did, which is that I had an idea for who I wanted, and then I looked at all the analytics, and I was like, "Wow, fifty-seven completions and no turnovers." Dustin Damiano, what a game! But I'm gonna cheat and do what Daniel Cohen from the AUDL did in his AUDL draft, where he drafted both drafts at the same time, as if you take one brother, you get both brothers. I'm gonna get take both the Sands brothers. First of all, in the broadcast, they don't know whether or not they're brothers. They say, I believe they're brothers. Well, you don't know. So you could have just said they're brothers and we wouldn't have called you on it. Or you could have said, I think. I believe makes it seem like you have some information. You had no information except their last names. But whatever, I'm taking them both. They had an incredible game when you mush them together. They had, they were plus nine. They had uh, three assists and uh, nine goals. Just an unbelievable game from between the two of them. And if you consider them one, uh, they're by far the standout player. I like the Sands brothers in this in this game. They, they both played really well. And uh, Mark Sands actually uh, dropped a goal from Ryan Weaver early in this game. I believe it was in the first three points of the game that it was a big huck that just went up and Ryan or uh, Mark Sands went up with one hand and it just ganked off the back of bank off the uh, heel of his hand there. And it went out the back of the end zone. Otherwise, Ryan Weaver would have had another assist and Mark Sands would have had another goal. So, yeah, Mark Sands, Zach Sands all had great games. Funny funny how we leave Arcata out. Arcata scores five goals and nobody even mentions his name. <laughs> I was I was going to, so I know I'm like a little boring. Oh. 
I, I, for me, I'm kind of of the nature of like, yes, standout is probably Sands and Weaver, both Sands brothers and Weaver, um, if you're going standout, but you can't necessarily have standout players without glue people like Damiano, Mott, Arcata pulling his weight constantly. And I, and I think that's, that to me is, is more valuable that like you need those people to set up those standout players. So um, that has always really been important to me. I like pride myself on my game being a little more boring and, and helping set up people that can make highlight good plays. Um, and so I think like that to me is, is the Arcadas, the Mots, the Damiano consistency, Himalaya, like the consistency of those four people all season and every game to set up people for breakout games like the Sands, I think is, is totally essential. And for me, I would just kind of like always go back to them. Yes, I know it gets older, the names we always say, but um, just like so, so valuable. Mott with three assists and two blocks in that game. Uh, like normally you would look at that stat sheet and say, wow, Mott was, uh, they, they, somebody tied Mott down there a little bit. Uh, but Mott was actually pivotal in this game. The Toronto announcers were saying that he was he was there every time the Phoenix needed him. And you're right, Andrew. He he's he's that glue that keeps this team together. I think he it was behind the disc a lot more, missing foreign and and having Boyle back there and and yeah. Damiano. You know he he's going to come back and hang more and get more touches to be more of a distributor when he's missing some of the bigger throwers. Um, and you know he's his game is so dynamic that he can do both. So I think like he was like, oh, I'm gonna be around the disc more. We don't have some of our main throwers. And alleviating those that like touch per possession or, you know, just from, from taking that off of everyone else and, and just super essential in that way. All I right. felt like I wasn't allowed to say Mott because I took Mott last week and the week before. I, t- I took Mott every time. You guys got mad at me. <laughs> I didn't just say him. I said other people. I said Arcada, Himmy, Dustin. But, yeah, I mean, he's – that the thing about, like, yes, it's like you always say Mott and he gets a lot of press, but – I, and to me, he just um, continually proves why, because he can literally do it all. And, like, again, no bias coming from this, just, like, playing with him in a lot of leagues, playing with him in club, watching him in Phoenix for years. If he needs to be a distributor, he will be. If he needs to be a cutter, he will be. If he needs to help defense, he will do it. It's just, like, it's really exceptional. And um, he sets people like the Sands brothers up. Like, they feed off each other so well. Like, they all went to Pensbury together, so, like, they know each other well. They've played together for years, um, and just got. And he's played with Himmy and Arcata for years. So having having the chemistry and having that that comfort level that he has on a pro stage is just awesome, and helps other people just be successful around him. So I was having this conversation with my roommate yesterday. Uh, my roommate who doesn't play ultimate. So I was like mostly just explaining frisbee to him, and he asked me, "Do they run the offense through one person?" And I was like, that's actually a big debate. Like, some offenses do, some offenses don't. In Philly, we try to distribute more than in other places. But do you think that the Philadelphia team, the Phoenix, last season, would have done would have done better, Andrea, if they had treated Mott like Pittsburgh treated Max Shepard or D.C. treats Rowan, where, like, he's getting way more touches than, uh, than everybody else on the team. And it's not like D.C. is only looking to throw to Rowan, but Rowan is initiating every cut. He dominates... I, I made up a stat for goal line usage, but he, him and Max Shepard dominate goal line usage in the year in the league last year, like even ahead of guys like uh, Ben Yacht. Yeah. So I think uh, 
it's tough. Um, there's so many other players that have so much ability and talent that obviously you need more than Mott. Um, but does he have the ability to completely command a field and to completely crush defenses? Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, yes, he probably could have gotten the disc more. He could have been more greedy. And that was personal feedback I had given him a couple times. Um, he's, he's and, and just kind of like, if he, he wants it so badly, but he's also just willing to, to set other people up. But I think if he had gotten more stuff towards him, absolutely. If he had been like a Rowan or a Shepherd or a, you know, there's just people that, um, and he had been that for the Phoenix in the past. And the Phoenix have gotten more talent. So he hasn't necessarily needed to, or the, or the plays calls have been more distributed. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's some games where it probably should be a little more swayed towards him. Um, there's others where you need to, like when you have people like Billy Sickles on the team um, from the past and Nikki Spiva and, and now Himalaya, just as you add all of this talent, it would be a shame to waste it and still give Ma every look. Not that the other teams that are doing that offense through one person don't have other talent, but it's it's a little hard to to say for sure. I just think, yes, there are times where he should absolutely get it even more, even though he's getting it every time, you know? And there are other times where it's like, okay, he can he can just distribute this game. These people are set up to do well, whether that's Greg Martin, Himalaya, Billy Sickles, um, just kind of anyone. And I think I think more of a balance for sure. Instead of like, it used to be all Mott, then it was kind of everyone's even. And I think getting back to a little bit more, like sometimes it's going to be all Mott and sometimes it might be a little more distributed, but I think they were really cautious to keep giving him all of those reps um, this past year. And, and uh, yeah, so. I mean, Mott, Mott is like that Swiss army knife that everybody talks about where he can fit in and, and when, wherever the team is lacking um, in, in whatever game they're in. And if he's needed to take over at the end of games, he's that that's something he can do on the fly. It's not something he really needs preparation for. I mean, you can just say, okay, Mon, I need you to get every other, like starting now, like we, we need you to be for real. And I, I'm, dollars the donuts he would go out there and get every other pass for sure and uh, the way that he can just uh influence a game and dictate a game i mean he's the most valuable player on this team there's no question about it <laughs> what do you question about you you're talking about the patrol players and i noticed that bryce dunn mark sands and Calmasino did not go to that patrol tournament what would you say is the importance of the patrol tournament versus this game in toronto yeah, I think it comes down to I don't remember exactly which patrol tournament they were at. I don't know if any of you do. Um, but I think, you know, the Phoenix season is underway. Getting a win that could help them in playoffs. With, you know, like every game matters to the Phoenix and, and every win is is big. Um, so it comes down to like you're committing to something. You committed to pro first. You'll get enough time to play club after um, and go with patrol after. In terms of early tournaments for patrol, not important to the rest of the season, not important for making nationals. Um, yes, it's good for chemistry to be there, but I think in terms of if you're playing on the Phoenix, you want them to make the playoffs. You want them to be successful. So you will go on a trip like Canada and kind of go in a new spot, play with the people you've been playing with and committed to a couple months earlier. 
Um, I think I think it's more important to probably prioritize the thing that you started first. The being at that patrol tournament won't do anything for patrol later on. Yeah, more reps with people, chemistry, but overall, I think I like the decision of Bryce, Mark, and Colin to to choose Phoenix there. I I agree with you. I actually I'm a you know what you put it is actually really interesting because you're right. They did when they when they when they went to that tryout with the Phoenix. They already made a commitment that, hey, I'm going to go to every game. You know, now, sure, there's some things that you can't avoid, like marriage proposals and weddings and stuff like that. But, like, something where you do have a choice and you already had a commitment, that, that, that's, that's true. Like, if so, for players who do go to tryouts, it's, they're basically kind of signing a contract that says, hey, I'm coming to this game. I'm coming to, I should be available for every game. Good way to put it. Hey, where, yeah. where, where, where was Himalaya? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We had a huge family function at home. My sister was had a huge dance recital, and so we so we had to go home, and we were MCs for that, so we couldn't miss it. And my parents invited the whole world; we had to be there. Okay, I, I thought I thought yeah. Hemi went to the patrol tournament. Hemi no, didn't play didn't. club. Hemi doesn't play patrol anymore. Oh my word! He's really old now. He retired, so this is he's nice. getting up there in years. Gotcha. Let's not go down that that hole. A lot of lot of lot of tread on the tires. No, not at all. I mean, look, you <laughs> see him lay out, and when he lays out and falls down, just just watch him. Look how long it takes him to get up. I mean, he just looks. I I, I tell him that, I tell him this to make him upset, but I, and this is kind of funny because you're t- talking about a huge sky he had in that New York game where he just defeated Drouse like crazy, and it was called a foul for some reason. But before that game, I was talking to him like, "Hey man, I miss you, man. Like you're when you're on the spinners, you're crazy good. What's happened to you? I mean, look at you now. I mean, <laughs> what are that's the, what, what are you these... tell him? <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm like, 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 what are these undercuts? Like... What are you doing with these undercuts, man? Go deep, go sky someone. So like, and I said that before that New York game, and what he does on the field is crazy. He just goes there and just sky someone. Because I, I kind of lit the fire under him a little bit, but I, I make these jokes at him because I, I'm a I'm a retired all-star physique player. I'm two years younger than him. You know, I'm done. I'm retired. <laughs> um, was Nard at this game, this Toronto game? Yeah, yeah. he was, but he plays offense because they're missing so many offensive people. I actually texted Nate about it because I was like, why didn't you have Nard covering Akafumi Marioka in this game like you did in the previous game? Whatever. And he was like, because Nard had to play offense. <laughs> Why don't we talk about that? Nard doesn't get enough press either. Shit, we should have talked about that. Or I guess we still can. But that's something I would feel like. That's a that's a difference for the offense. Like, Nard is a D-line anchor. And he moved to offense for this game. That's huge. That's why Nard's a captain. He has some awesome plays in this game, too. He has a play where it's like a full field give and go with Dustin Damiano or, or half field give and go where he'll like catch it on an in cut, dump it back and bust deep. And Dustin's at like the 50 yard line. And he just tucks it, hoping that uh, Nard runs it down. That was a sweet play. This part, this has to get in there then. Yeah. Like also recording, I'll figure it out. <laughs> having, having a um, D line anchor like Nard that is crossing over means that like when you're turning it on, O, you have someone, very D-minded there to help you get it back. And that's why maybe what contributed to part of their offense being so efficient in Toronto is that you have this D-line stud there, like, as a, as a, when you turn it, you're basically, he's, like, doing his thing. He's in his, he's in his element. And that's huge. Uh, no, no, you're right about that. And, and 
I think that's why they put confused. It confounds me. I should have asked Nate about this too. Where they they, they do put Billy Sickles on the O line just because he's a great offensive weapon as well as a great defensive weapon. So kind of anchors him. But Nardelli is definitely like our best defender by far on the defensive line. I think so. But even even looking at the other side, I think on some D lines and the sort of small amount of games he's played, David Bears put on the the D line just to get the offensive kind of going. So I do think they do think about who they're putting on each line to have one person that's offensive for defense and one person that's really defensive for offense. But it's interesting to say that maybe they should look take another look at the game and say Nardelli's on oh and he's and we had a, probably the best offensive efficiency we've had all year in that in that game. Well it's tough too because like the offense gets cramped like crammed. I think defense you have more ability to play with the lines because um, chemistry matters matters on defense, but it matters differently. Whereas in offense, like I would like to stick with eight or nine people and have them be always the offense, uh, just because that way they develop like a rhythm and they can trust each other and they know what's happening, um, and it's hazardous i think to do it the other way what do i know though what do you mean by having too many people you mean too many defensive people on offense no not that we having too many people like playing offense period we have a lot of people on the team who are playing offense and nard who is an excellent defender could do that but there are so many people who are already doing that that we should have him play defense, be a lockdown defender. But in this game, when he has to, it's really cool to see him make the switch. But there's there's people like Brandon Pastor who's built to play offense, and there are people who are like always going to be on the on the O line just because of who they are, uh, and because offense is more important in frisbee. So, you know. Whoa! Bite your tongue, Shaggy. It is. If you never, if you hold every point and score at the end of every quarter, you can't lose. Well, there you go. You, they do the, uh, they, like, so when I play the Mike Flop team, they usually put the best players on offense and the kind of rest kind of trickles down the defense. Is that, is that really, the, like, how do you decide lines in, for the Phoenix in general? I mean, this year, a lot, this past year, we had a really bad offensive conversion rate, offensive efficiency. So, what goes into even choosing? Do you, do you watch this Toronto game and go like, okay, Nardelli's on the O-line and he's doing really well. well. Let's try that again. And when we play New York Empire this next week, let's put him on O-line. Or do you go like, hey, we were missing players like Billy Sickles and, and Ethan Fordham and we'll just wait for those guys to come back next week and kind of just put them back to kind of where they were in the offensive line. Like, how do you, how do you decide that? How do you decide your lines? Yeah, how do you how do you experiment with that? If you have okay, so you have a set offensive line, right? So you have stuff with Billy Sickles, Eden Ford, and I'm just talking about these players who were missing from this game. And then you see really good success from players who kind of plug and play, like Nardelli. Now that next week when you go to the next game, do you incorporate those players that had really good success, better success than your original players had with offensive efficiency? Or do you go back to your original line? No, you uh, first off, you always stick with your original line, right? And and if but if people are missing, 
then you look into your universe line. What people would you pull over to a universe line uh, from the defensive side to be on your O-line if you were getting the disc in on universe point? It, this is how I would do it anyway. And that would be my first group of people that I would look at on who would come over and play on O in the AUDL. Now, and then the uh, the second thing is I would look at what positions I were I was deficient in if I was missing cutters, if I was missing handlers, and then I would look to the D line and I would look at D line handlers or D line cutters and say I would I would know knowing them from practice which ones would be more amenable to coming over to the offensive side of the disc and not having that big of a drop off uh, from their performance as opposed to them being on the D line. Does that make sense? No, I'm saying oh, so that does make sense, but you're saying so stick with the original. So I'm saying you're missing those players in that first game, and you go back to that second game the next following week. Do you keep those same players who had success, or do you no. go back to an original line? No, original lines. Original lines. You, go back, you, you trust your Billy Sickles of the world. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I'm with you, but do you, do you even try it out? Like in that next game, do you kind of say, can reward your players for doing well? You reward them saying, hey, I trust you to go out there and score some points. And for important points, if you see original line isn't working, you put that new line out there. That's, no. That's been working. No? No. No, I mean, I, I would do that maybe two games after the fact. I would sit there and say, oh, well, this worked two games ago, and then I brought these guys back, and it, then all of a sudden it didn't work. So let me maybe maybe see if I can incorporate some of what worked in the first game or two games ago and what didn't, and get rid of what didn't work in the second game. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. I just I was trying to build lines. I'm like, if there's so many factors to building lines, it's crazy. Oh, I got them all written down right here. Don't worry about it, Harvest. I'll share them with you in a little bit, man. <laughs> that can't be right. <laughs> but like, what if that's what if your players played better because it turns out that was better? What? What if your players, the ones that you didn't normally have on O line, play better, right? And your team succeeds in a position where maybe they were not succeeding before because those players were actually better on O-line. Like, how are you going to go back now to the worst one just because it was your old one? That can't be right. No, like, first hard? Part, it's not a worse line. Are you, say, are you saying you want to bench Billy Sickles and make sure Connor Boyle plays because Connor Boyle played okay in Toronto? and the We team wouldn't, we wouldn't be no. benching Billy Sickles for Connor Boyle. What we might be doing is benching Ethan Fortin for Connor Boyle, but what we also would be doing is is like in this example Why is swapping. In this example, what we because the team was more successful, but in this example, what we would be doing is swapping Billy Sickles and Nard because we watched Nard be so successful on the O line. That is a more accurate example of what's happening here. But Do you also, want to make people quit? Do you want to make Billy Sickles quit? Do you want to make think- Ethan Fortin quit? Then don't play them for guys that are coming up off the practice squad because of one game. If they're, uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the answer can't be go back to the way that didn't work because it was the way that we started at. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He didn't say and it. None of those work. players are playing. He didn't say they're it didn't gone. Work. They quit. He said, he said it had success. He said the one game had, they had success in one game. And that's that's what he was talking about was one game success, not multiple game success, not multiple season success, one game. Okay, well, we, no, don't, we don't know. Base, you can't like base all these games. decisions off of one game. You can't go. You can't go off of one game. You're going off of like five games. The sample size isn't there to support your thing more than it is to support my thing. It's a small sample size, no matter what. 
You have like two. We only played play ten games last season. That's not a sample size. That's indicative of anything. What you're actually doing, obviously, no, is going off of your full body of work. I watched four Billy Sickles Cubs games and a hundred Billy Sickles practices, and therefore I have an opinion based on that huge sample size. But if you're only going off of game to game, the one game sample size is just as indicative as a four game sample size. It's a it's like a meaningless sample. So that's not what you're doing, obviously. But you can't just go back to the one way because it is the one way and let those people quit. If that is seriously what's happening, if they're quitting because they're upset that someone else is getting playing time because oh, the results show that those people were better, then fine. But also, I don't think that any of those are good examples. A good example would be someone like Paul Owens, who I think Paul Owens is great every time I watch him play, except in the AUDL where he's been like funky and inconsistent. But what if he's only funky and inconsistent because he's playing on the D-line, and then we put him on the O-line, and all those crazy scoobers that he had, we were like, why is he doing this? They all get completed, and then we're like, whoa, that was amazing. That switch, which we would never have thought to do, except we try it, and then it happens. I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm saying that the answer can't be always go back to your original line, because then, like, what, you just, like, watch these players get old and, and feeble, and they can't do anything? You're just like, well, that was my line, so. Old and feeble. Is Ethan Fortin better than Connor Boyle? No. No? Are we talking about, like, watching them play in the games last year? Who would I rather have in the game when they played? Yeah. Yeah, then no. Now, are we talking about who have I watched a body of work in club ultimate and in practices? Then, yeah, you're right. But in the games, they performed worse. Ethan performed worse than Connor Boyle in the games. So Ethan Fortin should have got benched because of Connor Boyle. You, you, last year. Is that what you're saying? Why not? What would the difference have been? We would not have won any of those games. We would definitely not have lost the games that we lost with Ethan more than we lost. You would we have lost the player. You would have lost Ethan. We lost that player. That is no. a player who is lost. Who Why didn't get benched. <clears throat> what I'm saying is there's no way I'm benching as coach when Ethan Fortin's healthy and wants to play ultimate. If I have a choice between benching Connor Boyle and benching Ethan Fortin last year on the Philadelphia Phoenix, I'm I'm telling Connor Boyle that he's taking a seat and I'm going to play Ethan Fortin. That's Why? what I'm saying. Why? You, you know what? Let me let me let me just say something for Ethan, Ethan Fortin. Fortin is a more a more proven commodity. Shaggy, right. I, I disagree with you. Shaggy, I think that Ethan Fortin is definitely a better player than Connor, Connor Boyle, but in the even in the games. I see Ethan Fortin getting separation between him and his handler defense. Where I don't see Connor Boyle getting that same separation for dumps. You know, but I do think that Ethan Fortin hangs onto this a little too much. He's looking for that ninety percent throw that's not gonna be there at stall one or two. He's gonna wait till stall five and then probably go back to his first decision, which was the swing game. You know, and we saw that multiple times last year, and that's kind of where you're coming from, where you're like, Well, we don't know if he would we would have done better because he kind of held on to this a little too long. Even though he's a dominant handler and he really can hold on, hang on to the offense, I think he thinks too much about his throws and kind of stagnates the offense a little bit, have cutters cutting with but, but the wrong timing because the, the throws are not coming at the right time. So I don't know if Connor Boyle would do better than Ethan Ford in, in that situation, but I do know that Ethan Ford is definitely a better player than Connor Boyle. Is this on the record? Oh, shoot. It doesn't have to be. All right. Phoenix fans, thank you for joining us on another episode of The Burning Bird Presents The Phoenix Files. Game of the week. Shaggy, what game are we going to be doing next week? All right. 
we're doing, it's on YouTube, the June 26, 2018 Montreal Royale at the Philadelphia Phoenix. All right, Phoenix fans, we get the, another Montreal Royale Phoenix uh, slobber knocker next week. For Alexander Shaggy Shragus. <laughs> for Harvish Huck Meta. For Andrea DiSabato. I'm Steve Leiner. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Burning Bird.